the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm joined this week by Lionel Burney. Hello again, Richard. We're back from Ghent and uh, we're back in our respective homes and we are joined by someone in the final throes of preparation for an enormous physical undertaking. We're going to talk about that a bit later on, I'm sure. Daniel Freib. Hello, Richard. (laughs) What a build-up that was. Where are you, Daniel? I am in Mallorca. Spain, the right. Islands. Intriguing, Spain. intriguing. Well, we'll be hearing more about what you're what you're about to do a bit later on, Daniel. On his one man training to. camp, this is, isn't it? Well, is it's right? not not training now, Lionel. Tapering, tapering. Okay. Anyway, um, more on that, more on that later. This is um, the first in a series of episodes looking back on the year and and forward a little bit to next year. Um, we're calling this series this five part series. We're calling it Anus Galaxicus. Uh, Daniel speaks Latin as well as every other <laughs> language known to man. Uh, to explain this one, Daniel. At the risk of sounding like Boris Johnson, no, it simply means the galactic year. <laughs> we were going to talk about the year of the Galacticos, but we decided that together, those individuals that we'd anointed as such had together produced a, a galactic year of great races and great headlines and great stories and great talking points. So there we go. The, the the presence of these Galacticos certainly defined the year, defined a lot of the races, even if they didn't win them all. In this week's episode, we'll be looking back at the first half of the classics, up to and including the cobbles. Then next week, we'll be looking back at the Ardennes races and other one-day races. We have some interviews that we'll play over the two weeks of our classics review episodes. We'll be hearing from Tom Pidcock, Casper Askreen, Tom Squinge, Alan Piper, great to hear him out on his bike, Lionel, when you were speaking to him, and Jonathan Vauters. After our review of the classics, the next episode in our Anus Galaxicus series will be a look back at the Grand Tours and stage races. The week after that, we'll be doing a press conference episode, so please send us your questions. Contact at thecyclingpodcast.com if you can send us an audio file with any questions at all about the year or about anything. Um, introduce yourselves, record yourself and asking a question. Try and keep it under a minute if you can. An email, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. And the final week before Christmas, we'll be doing our alternative awards, uh, some awards for the year just gone. And that all leads into uh, our Christmas selection box for friends of the podcast. So between Christmas and New Year, a series of episodes for friends of the podcast. Um, but before we get into the classics, Lionel, could you give us a news roundup, please? I will, Richard, very briefly this week because we want to get looking back at the the races that made the year. But uh, the Ghent Six Day last week, our episode came from the track in Ghent and we remarked, didn't we, about how few crashes there were. The skill of the riders is immense, but unfortunately on the final day there was quite a significant crash. Mark Cavendish went down in the Madison race on Sunday and ended up with two fractured ribs and a punctured lung. The riders said that there was some liquid on the track and they'd avoided it going around the previous lap or two, um, but eventually there was a collision or a kind of series of near misses and then a collision. Uh, The race was paused for 40 minutes while Cavendish was first put onto a stretcher and and checked that he was okay. He was taken to hospital in Ghent. Uh, This does mean that there's been a pause to his contract discussions with De Kernick Quickstep who will actually become Quickstep Alpha Vinyl next season. Alpha Vinyl is not so much a secondary sponsor, by the way. It's one of Quickstep's ranges of flooring. But, no, but no pause no pause for his publishing endeavours. He's got a book out this week, I believe. Has he, Daniel? You who, believe. Who, who, who co-ghost wrote that? That shall remain a mystery, Lionel. Um, like like the, re- the reason for my, for my stay in Mallorca, hopefully. Anyway... <laughs> on, with the, on with the roundup. Well, when the racing resumed in Ghent, there was a dream finish for Kenny de Ketteler, who was riding his final edition before retiring. He won his sixth Ghent Six title with Robert Gase, ahead of Jasper de Boist and Roger Kluger. 
It's uh, also cross season at the moment. The World Cup resumed in Coxsider, my favourite event, uh, simply because it's very accessible to me from the south of England. It's held amid the sand dunes and army barracks there on the Belgian coast, or just inland from the Belgian coast. Ellie Isabit won the men's race, strengthening his lead overall, and Anna-Marie Vorst won the women's race. And it's just this morning being confirmed that Matthew van der Poel will return to the World Cup cyclocross uh, racing on December the 18th and will ride five rounds in the lead up to the World Championships. It's expected that the first showdown with Wout van Aert will be at the Dendermonde World Cup race on Boxing Day. An event for us may be rich, the slowest hour record. Davide Formolo, mm. who's uh, rode last season with UAE Team Emirates and Maria Vittoria Sperotto set new records in the slowest hour record at the velodrome in Bassano del Grappa. 918 metres covered in an hour. Well, I actually watched uh, some footage of, of that hour record. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, it looked quite hard, actually. Uh, you've got to remain on the bike. I mean, it'd be easier just to have the clock running step off the bike stand beside it for an hour and then but you're not like you've got to stay on the bike obviously well not only that quite tough not only that you've got to keep moving you can't come to a complete stop disqualified if you come to a complete stop i didn't realize until reading up about this but uh, former Giro d'italia winner gilberto simone had tried to break the record at um this particular record but narrowly missed out but there we are Silly season. Slow cycling. There's also some news about Peter Sagan, but we'll cover that later on in this episode when we talk about the classics and ask whether his move to Team Total Energies can revive him as a major contender for the biggest one-day races. A bit more change at Bora Hansgrohe, not necessarily in the team, but in the team car. Bernie Eisel, who people remember was a lead-out man, domestique, supporter, uh, carer for Mark Cavendish, uh, he will be familiar to people. As ghostwriter? Go, not quite ghostwriter, no. He will be familiar to people as one of the reporters on GCN, but he is joining Bora Hansgrohe in the sports directing team, as is Enrico Gasparotto, twice winner of the Amstel Gold Race, and Torsten Schmidt, who I mentioned simply because uh, he rode for a team with a fantastic name, Team Chicky World, before joining Gerald Steiner in the early 2000s. Chicky World was a computer game? Unfortunately not, Daniel. Uh, no, it wasn't It wasn't a sort of a genteel um, computer game for children. It was uh, the producer of a range of poultry products. So I don't think the chickies came off too well in, uh, in that particular arrangement. And just lastly, there were some reports last week that Mark Padun, who's been riding for Bahrain Victorious and of course won back-to-back stages at the Dauphiné, um, and the King of the Mountains jersey there is joining EF Nippo next season. I actually spoke to Jonathan Vorters this week about a range of things, and I did ask him directly whether they had signed Padun, and he said that when it, something is ready to be announced, they will announce it. He didn't confirm or deny, but he did talk at length about the testing they'd done on Padun and the conversations they'd had, and it sounded to me... Uh, I put two and two together and thought that uh, perhaps that deal is just in the final stages of being um, finalised. So an interesting one, I think. Just finally, before we go, Lionel, um, either of you tempted to splash out some bitcoins on Watt Van Aert's NFTs? Alas, no. Not the first first, um, rider to lend their image name to NFT, is he? Mark Cavendish did a series during the tour, just before the Tour de France, which I had nothing to do with. I should ask. I mean, cryptocurrency and NFT are... Uh, NFTs are a non-fungible token. So, I mean, it's basically a, something that doesn't really exist, but does exist as far as I can tell. It's a, it's an image that is unique, um, but it's just a series of pixels. People talking about how uh, mm. a, a sort of digital image can be as valuable as a Picasso in, in years to come. I mean, I, I don't want to... I don't want to be, you know, grumpy old skeptic, but I'm pretty skeptical and well, grumpy. Well, it's very easy to be thing. cynical about this. I mean, I I did a bit of research into NFTs, what they are, but I didn't really understand it at all. And my fa- and this is the last word on this, but my favourite story that I found in an article I read in the Guardian was that uh, um, a crypto firm paid ninety five thousand dollars for Morons, a physical artwork by Banksy depicting an auctioneer selling a framed picture bearing the words. I can't believe you morons actually buy this shit. They then burned the picture before selling a digital token of the work for 380,000 euros. $380,000, sorry. So there we go. Yeah, my attitude to this kind of thing is um, 
you know, I'm quite comfortable be, with being the final person to ever be a cryptocurrency millionaire. I mean, I, I just, I can't get my brain around it, I'm afraid. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Big thank you to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens, for their support of the cycling podcast across all our shows. Uh, there's a very interesting article about Super Sapiens on velonews.com if you'd like to find out a bit more. There's an interview um, there with Phil Sutherland, the founder and chief executive of Super Sapiens. Also some quotes from Chris Froome. Um, and Phil talks about how the system integrates with your computer on your bike um, as well as obviously with the energy band that you can wear on your wrist. When you have the number in front of you, says Phil, it's so easy to learn. I think if it's an app in your pocket, you're not going to get the full value. But when you see the data in front of you, when you're active, it's so easy to get the maximum value out. And having used Super Sapiens myself, um, I can vouch for the fact that it's a fascinating uh, tool to learn about nutrition and fueling, uh, particularly when you're out on your bike. If you'd like to know more about Super Sapiens, uh, go to supersapiens.com. And if you want to read the article about Super Sapiens on VeloNews, that's at velonews.com. So in part one of our review, our look back on the, the classics here, well, we're calling this section everything that came before, um, because the, the main focus, I suppose, for us today is the monuments. But um, before the first monument, Milan-San Remo, there was this incredible build-up to it. Um, through Strada Bianca, a, a phenomenal race um, in uh, March in, in, in Tuscany, of course, a one-day race, um, which a lot of people argue should be a monument. Um, it has everything that monuments should have, apart from perhaps distance. But Terreno Adriatico as well, which followed that and led into Milan-San Remo, was uh, an amazing curtain raiser for Milan San Remo in particular, although the winner of Treno Adriatico would not in fact ride Milan San Remo. But Daniel, can you lead us through this period, this this period in the season where there was all this anticipation? Well, if we go back, if we cast our minds back right to the start of the 2021 season, Rich, obviously we'd had this very strange truncated sort of upside down 2020 in which um, Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert had both won their first monuments. Uh, Wout van Aert had won the sort of restyled Milan San Remo and van der Poel had won the Tour of Flanders beating van Aert in a sprint. And we expected them to be the two sort of titans of the road in the classics, didn't we? Um, both, I think, 26 years of age going into the year or van der Poel turned 26 in January. And, um, well, the third sort of prong of the Trident, if it was going to be a, a, a battle between those three, um, was going to be Julien Alaphilippe, who was the world champion. He, he'd become world champion in Imola in 2020. So there was a lot of anticipation, certainly, um, centering on, on those guys. Van Aert had just renewed his contract with uh, Jumbo Visma in January. Um, if you remember, there was a, quite a bit of speculation in the winter about his future, and even um, there were there were rumours linking him to Ineos, but that moved to tie him to a long-term contract, 2024. That was sort of um, Jumbo Visma nailing their colours to to that mast as far as the classics were concerned. Um, van der Poel and, and Van Aert had gone toe-to-toe, -to -toe, not as regularly as they had done in the past, but in the in the cyclocross season, they'd come up against each other, and Van der Poel had got the better of Van Aert in the World Championships. He'd won his fourth World Championships in Ostend. And then, then the racing got underway, and we had opening weekend, um, Omelette Het Nieuwsblad in, um, at the end of February, won by a De Koenig quick-step rider, but not Alaphilippe, although Alaphilippe was pretty lively there. It was won by... Davide Ballerini. The following day at Kerner Brussels Kerner, Van der Poel, he launched a trademark, um, pretty sort of, um, seemed at the time illogical, gratuitous, heedless attack, 80 kilometers from the finish, but it was certainly fantastic to watch, very entertaining, and he was extremely strong. He was only caught with two kilometers to go, and, well, the race came back together. It was a bunch sprint, and... 
Another rider who a lot of people thought would really thrive in the Classics this year, Mads Pedersen, was led out brilliantly by Jasper Sturven to win Kurna. Um, meanwhile, in France, there was another name to conjure with. Philippe Organa really nuked everyone at the Etoile de Bessage. He won time trial there and um, was also very impressive winning uh, with, a, with a long-range solo attack. So he was another rider that people were very much looking forward to seeing. Tom Pidcock was also um, going to be lining up in his first full classic season for Ineos Grenadiers. Pidcock just 21 at the start of the season, um, but hotly tipped by some to well to to compete with with Van der Poel and Van Aert, his well his two rivals in in cyclocross over over the winter. And um, yeah, so the stars were really aligning for a, a, a fantastic classic season and you know it sort of reminded me just casting my mind back to well there there would be comparisons over the course of this season for various reasons of various riders with Eddie Merckx and if you look back at the start of Eddie Merckx's career in the sort of 1966-67 seasons it was a period in professional cycling when no one really knew who was going to be the dominant figure over the next decade and Jacques Anquetil's reign in the Grand Tours was ending or had ended and Raymond Poulidor was was getting older as well and the sort of thrown both in, as far as Grand Tours and the classes um, were concerned, was sort of vacant, really. Rick Van Looy was also coming to the end of his career, and there were there were various names of various sort of pretenders. You know, Walter Goder for Merckx himself had won Milan San Remo in 1966. Uh, Gianni Motta, Fili- um, Felice Gimondi, Roger Pinjon, um, all of these guys, and and in a, in a way, we we sort of were confronted with a, a similar you know configuration at the start of this year um, a lot of us suspected that one clear dominant figure would emerge in the classics um, I think a lot of people thought that it would be Mathieu van der Poel and well the sort of events of of early March with um, the two Italian races you alluded to Rich Tirreno Adriatico and Strade Bianche strengthened that or reinforced that a suspicion um, for a lot of people because Mattia van der Poel was pretty extraordinary at Tirreno Adriatico, particularly in the fifth stage, what will be well, a stage that will, that will linger long in many people's memories in the Marque region, a filthy day, and van der Poel, again, another one of these incredible solo raids. Wonderful fifth stage of Tirreno Adriatico is coming to a conclusion, and it's coming to glory for Matthew van der Poel, the national champion of the Netherlands, is going to strike another blow against the other riders in the World Tour. He's exhausted, he's out on his wheels, but he's the winner of stage five of Tirreno Adriatico, Matthew van der Paul was asked a big question by Tane Pogacar, who just misses out by a few seconds, but it's all about what he's gained on the day. Within 10 seconds of Matthew van der Paul at the conclusion of a wonderful day. I was completely empty. I don't even know uh, how I got to the finish line today. The last 10-15k were really hell for me today. Uh, I thought he was going to get me. Uh, I couldn't ride through on the watch anymore. I was really completely empty with the cold and the long solo I did so I thought he was going to get me but I'm really happy to, to get rewarded with the win. Um, I should also say that Van der Poel had, had won his first bunch sprint in a World Tour race a couple of weeks before that, the UAE Tour, before his Alpecin Phoenix team had had to pull out because of a positive Covid test but Van der Poel showed all of his vers- versatility um, by winning um, that stage in Tirreno. And talking of versatility, well, Wout van Aert, he'd won a bunch sprint at Tirreno, he'd finished second on the big mountain stage, and he was about to win the final time trial as well. I mentioned the mountain stage at Tirreno. Well, who won that? It was a rider that not many people were talking about in terms of the classics, but certainly looking um, further ahead in the season, Tade Pogacar. And he won Tirreno overall as well. I mean, who can forget at, at Tirreno, uh, Matthew van der Poel's attack on a, a, a freezing cold day with a, with an energy bar in his mouth. And uh, he said afterwards he, he really just wanted to, to stay warm. Um, and, and what happened at Tirreno certainly had a bearing, I think, at Milan San Remo. But before that, Strada Bianchi, where van der Poel was the winner from this incredible 
uh, front group that formed uh, with you know the last two Tour de France winners, Wat van Aert, the world champion Julian Alaphilippe. Um, Tom Pidcock was there as well. Uh, Quinn Simmons was there briefly. He punctured out that group. And Michael Gogol, the Austrian interloper who featured in an episode of Kilometer Zero during the Giro where he talks about being in that group. He was the, the guy that really stood out because he didn't have the, the, the palmarès, obviously, that those, those riders all, all had. And that, that was a, a fascinating race and a hugely exciting race. And it really did demonstrate van der Poel's talents uh, probably more decisively, more conclusively than any other race. I think, Daniel, it was it was about the first time as well, or it was a, a time when you began to 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 feel something for Vanderpool that you perhaps hadn't felt before. I think I listened back to our episode at that time. You talked about a, a sort of emotional connection uh, that you hadn't really felt before. Do you remember why that was? Or one of the themes of the season, as a Vanderpool season, from my point of view was his sort of full integration or assimilation um, of of the, the the road scene and the road world and he he started to feel like a, a permanent fixture on the road calendar and in um, the sort of panorama of road racing which he, he hadn't um, certainly in my mind prior to that um, he'd been someone who sort of dipped in and almost in sort of desultory fashion had been able to just pitch up whenever he wanted and and produce these these attacks that we weren't really used to seeing in road racing you know in the most unlikely places and in the most unlikely way and just blow everyone away and I think both in a sort of positive sense and a negative sense from his point of view this year we would see him having to sort of fall a little bit more into the rank and file of, of road racing and, and, and you know, adopt or, or sort of learn some of the lessons that everyone has to learn in road racing, make some of the mistakes that people are accustomed to making in road racing um, and that he, he couldn't just be this sort of superhero who who would do in every race what, in fact, he did do in Strade Bianche. And, and you know, at that point at the start of March with all of the, the monuments ahead of us, I, I think some of us or some people maybe imagined that that was going to be the shape of, of the classics this year, that um, Van der Poel was just going to bring his sort of bazooka to every one of those races. And it was going to be fairly one-sided. I don't know if that's Well, his you guys bazooka, thought. yeah, I mean, his bazooka was, was maybe uh, lost on the, the wet roads of Terreno a little bit or... Or, or, you know, um, lost temporarily. Because that race, Strada Bianca was, you know, we, we saw all these riders going toe-to-toe. You know, while Van Aert looked a bit tired, he, he doesn't give up. He kept coming back to that group. But when eventually it was Van der Poel got away with Bernal and Philippe, and Van der Poel got his bazooka out on the climb up into Siena, steep little climb, and really made Alaphilippe uh, look, um, you know, he le- left him for, for dead. There there was no real uh, match there at all. And and we sort of uh, we, we sort of looked on that as a as a, a dry run for Milan San Remo. But they're very different climbs. So going into Milan San Remo, you know, we we thought that if Vanderpool brought that sort of attacking ability to the Poggio, then that would be um, you know um, game set and match. But when we looked ahead to Milan San Remo, we wondered two things. One was whether that performance in Terreno would have taken the edge off Van der Poel's form because, I mean, his father, Adrie Van der Poel, called that stage win uh, on, on that filthy day the, the best performance of his career. And, and I sort of suggested that if that was the case, it, it was sort of wasted in Terreno Adriatico with all respect to that race. And I wondered whether he would recover in time for Milan San Remo. We also wondered about his positioning. Positioning is so important going into that corner, uh, going into the Poggio. You know, the race for the, the foot of the Poggio is almost as significant as the race up the Poggio. And we wondered whether he might be caught out by that. And and I think I think both those things happened. We didn't see van der Poel at his very best at Milan San Remo. I think the key takeaway from those two Italian races, Strada Bianca and Torreno Adriatico, was that we were expecting to see Van Aert, Alaphilippe, Matthew van der Poel go head-to-head in the monuments, particularly Milan San Remo, uh, Tour of Flanders, um, maybe even uh, you know Alaphilippe in uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège. 
Um, but actually, none of them won one of the five monuments. They did win other races. They were prominent in all of the races, but they didn't actually get over the line first. And in fact, when we look back at the five monument monuments, uh, Tade Pogacar um, sort of climbed into the Galactico circle with them. And I think that was... You know, when I look back now at just how much of their hands they showed in Strada Bianca and Tirreno Adriatico really shows a sort of shift in how um, the classics are raced and particularly how the build-up races are raced. You know, they didn't hide anything, did they? They went toe-to-toe for a week in Italy, not thinking oh, I'm going to keep my powder dry or I'm going to just, you know, hold in reserve uh, just how strong they're feeling. Um, they went out to win stages, as you say, Rich, of a race that when all is said and done, didn't really matter. And perhaps that contributed to opening the door for other riders to take advantage when the five monuments came along. And Jasper Stuyven waits to launch. Has he managed to recover? They're coming with a charge behind. Here comes Matthew van der Poel. Van der Poel launches. Will he get to Stuyven in time? Stuyven surely has enough in hand. Jasper Stuyven's got to hang on. That famous victory in Milan San Remo. As yes. Jasper Stuyven survives to take the victory at the end of 299 kilometres. It all came down to that crescendo finish. And Trek Segafredo are already celebrating. Vincenzo Nibali can hardly believe it. Jasper Stuyven can hardly believe it. Matthew van der Poel vanquished as he's best to the rest behind. But it's Jasper Stuyven that has taken the win. Yeah, I, felt, I felt actually really good all day. And the final was, was going well. I... I was there on Poggio, but then of course there was a lot of fast guys. So uh, I know that, yeah, I have to try all or nothing, which I did, and uh, it was good because if I go to the line, I maybe finish around fifth to tenth place, and uh, I prefer to to go all in and end up with the empty hands, and uh, or go all in and uh, take the biggest victory of my career, and uh, maybe eight eight times out of ten. We'll have nothing, but those two times or even one time, I have everything, and uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I yeah, actually was feeling well, and then uh, was a good gap, and uh, I was the legs were completely empty at the end. But if you win by by one minute or one centimeter, it's enough. Well, Daniel, you were prescient in our when we looked ahead to Milan San Remo in saying that you thought there was a, a real good chance of a rider clipping away after the descent of the, the Poggio. You thought it'd be Filippo Ghana. You did also say that Trek Segafredo uh, w- w- had a very interesting uh, had very interesting cards to play, but you didn't, I'm afraid, mention Jasper Stuyven. You did mention Mads Pedersen, who wasn't riding Milan San Remo, but you know, you're almost almost spot on in your predictions for Milan San Remo. You just got the rider and the team wrong. Well, Rich, we we had talked a lot, hadn't we, about Van der Poel and the likelihood of a long-range attack from the Cipresa and even on the Poggio. But then, you know, again, we saw in Milan San Remo already one of the the themes of his classic season, one of the themes, I suppose, of his classic career thus far, which was the sort of ragged positioning. And particularly when he went into the Poggio, we talked about it a lot, that he was a long way back. But the key thing for me in Milan San Remo was the presence and the performance of Caleb Ewan, which surprised a lot of people. Um, he was the third or fourth best rider on the Poggio. At one point, he was even, well, he was the first man, I think, on Wout van Aert's wheel. Van Aert attacked on the Poggio. Alaphilippe also went after him. And again, we had we had this fantastic group, but Ewan was there. Um, and that really, from my point of view, particularly looking back now, made it inevitable that someone was going to do what Stoven ended up doing. Stoven attacked at the bottom of the Poggio descent, and the moment he did... Everyone else really in the group was was condemned because they were not going to work with Caleb Ewan. Ewan had shown, or everyone knew that he was on paper the strongest or the fastest guy in that group. And he also had incredible form. And from that moment on, Stoven, well, he he had a bit of a, a magic carpet ride to the finish as well because Sir and Crow Anderson did manage to make it across and just managed to put in a sort of two, 300-metre turn, which was the difference between Stoven getting caught and staying away. And he did stay away. But we did see some of the some of the, the themes, some of the features of, of Van Aert and Van der Poel and Alaphilippe's riding as well. I mean, Alaphilippe didn't win, but he showed in Milan-San Remo. And I think, from my mind, one of the most impressive things about Alaphilippe's season was that there were times when he wasn't 
at his best, didn't have his best form, and yet was still able to attack and still able to um, to hurt other riders. And he did that in Milan San Remo. He was with the best guys on the podium, despite you know sort of grumbling, complaining about not being on great form. The other thing about Van Aert in Milan San Remo, which again would would be overlooked, I think, later in the season, but. We talked a lot about his his lack of strength or Jumbo Visma's lack of strength. In his training camp in January, I think it was January or February in Tenerife, um, he'd lost Mike Tunison. Tunison had crashed and he was going to be a key rider for Jumbo Visma in the Classics this year. And his absence left Jumbo Visma a little bit short and it left them short in that finale in Milan San Remo. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52, the monthly beer club that puts together cases of classic craft beers and delivers them to your door. There are five monuments in the world of men's professional cycling, but a case from Beer 52 contains eight craft beers usually, but if you sign up for this offer before December the 17th, they'll send you two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers all you have to do is cover the cost of postage, which is £5.95. Like the classics, a case of Beer 52 beers contains something for everyone. Each beer has its own unique character and flavour. And if dark beer is not your thing, simply choose the light option, which I suppose is the equivalent of skipping Paris-Roubaix and moving on to the Ardennes classics. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send their experts around the globe to find the best beers available. And each month, members receive a new case. And by signing up and redeeming your free case, you'll be joining the monthly beer club for £24 a month. But don't worry, if that's not for you, you can still take advantage of the free beers because there's no minimum commitment and you can pause or cancel your membership at any time. But I think once you've sampled the beers, you'll find that there's something to surprise and delight. You'll also receive a copy of Ferment magazine, which explains a bit about the beers and the breweries and why Beer 52 have chosen a particular theme. And you'll also get two delicious snacks to enjoy with your beer. So go to beer52.com slash cycle, pay the £5.95 to cover the postage and claim your free case of 10 beers. That's beer52.com slash cycle. And if you do that by December the 17th, as I say, you will get the case of 10 beers. Well, that takes us nicely into the cobbled classics, Daniel, because I think Van Aert's best performance of, of the classic season was in Ghent-Wevelgem, which he won. Ghent-Wevelgem is always tricky with the crosswinds, and uh, also today there was a lot of wind and uh, uh, a lot of uh, open parts from the beginning. After the 50k was already uh, yeah, uh, nervosity in the peloton, and uh, yeah, I felt... Uh, Felt good being in the first echelon, and uh, also had my uh, my teammate with me. So yeah, it was a really long day, but uh, definitely worth it. Yeah, I think it was a lot of sprinters, but uh, yeah, also I can be confident in my my, my own sprint. And um, yeah, we worked really well together for a really long time. That that was actually important because uh, yeah, we needed each other to to make it that far. So that was also the mindset I had in the in the hills. I want to uh, stay in front with the strongest, but yeah, for sure also with a few guys because it's a long way coming back to Wevelgem and I think we, we played smart there and I was uh, so happy with uh, with uh, Nathan having in the front. He's, uh, yeah, he's a strong rider and today he showed, uh, he showed his ability and uh, yeah, it's really uh, impressive to have, uh, to, to have him uh, on my side. It was uh, kind of easy. Yeah, everybody knew that it was hard to to do attacks because uh, yeah, I also had one one teammate who uh, who would pull for me and uh, yeah, without maybe they they try more and then uh, it's harder. But uh, yeah, it's for sure an advantage that I had him and uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, really uh, really thankful for him. And it was the only race where he had really significant team support. Nathan Van Hoydonk was was with him because I think what we see a lot from Van Aert is he's on his own and he does too much. And, and even when he's perhaps not on his best day, he still does too much. Uh, we've, we saw that Strada Bianca as well, which he'd won before, of course, uh, last year. Um, and he rode it this year as if he was the outstanding favourite. Um, he looked incredibly strong until he didn't anymore, until he started to, to fade. And it was quite a surprise to see that. Um, 
it, it's it's commendable it's admirable that he 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 always gives gives it everything but it doesn't always help him uh get the the best results he can and i think in Ghent wevelgem just having team support with him nathan van hoydonk it, it it forced or it encouraged him to ride in a, a more conservative way um and he did on that occasion bet on winning the sprint at the end from a small group which he he did relatively easily and he has got that weapon you know he didn't need to drop everybody at strada bianca or other races because he has this incredible finish albeit there is the, the steep climb into Siena um but he does need a bit more support in the um finales of the classics and that certainly made a difference at Ghent Wevelgem seems like a good time as well to to drop in first couple of questions for my Buffalo's classics quiz um unfortunately you've ruined one of them Daniel because when I look back on Milan San Remo all I saw in my mind's eye was Jasper Stuyven attacking and and riding up alone to the finish I completely forgot that Soren Crow Anderson had bridged up to him. That was about the best we saw of Soren Cryanderson all year, I think. Um, but that was one of my questions, which Brit rider bridged up to Jasper Stuyven. So you're 1-0 up without even uh, the game having started. Okay, the next question, my first question. Who finished second at Het Newsblad? Jake Stewart. Well done. Uh, second question. How many times has Peter Sagan finished fourth at Milan San Remo? Oh. Four. We did this year. Uh, this year he did for the third year in a row. Third year in a row, wow. Three. How many in total? Oh, um, in that case, five. Yeah. Five, correct. Well done, Lionel. 2-1 uh, to Daniel. And um, we'll move on to more questions a bit later on. Um, anyway, uh, on to the, the Cobble Classics, yes. Well, maybe at, at that point, having mentioned uh, Gent Vabelgum and, you know, talked about Van Aert and his tactics, I think we were already seeing, and sometimes we, we did talk about this directly and, and other times it was very much the subtext when we were discussing the Classics, was, you know, sort of um, the, the thin line between showmanship and ego as far as Van Aert and... Van der Poel, and to a certain extent, Alaphilippe um, was concerned or were concerned. And we, you know, we, we know how intense their rivalry has been over the years in cyclocross. And, you know, there were some great interviews in the spring. I remember an interview in L'Equipe with Van Aert in which he talked about the, the relationship between him and Van der Poel. And he said they could never be friends, um, but it was sort of cordial. But we did always suspect this spring, and particularly with these audacious moves, I mentioned Van der Poel at Kuna. We, we we always suspected that there was an element of ego, um, wasn't there? You know, in Van Aert's over generosity, you know, he him always being the guy who was who was willing to get on the front and bring back breaks and and Van der Poel's attacks and Alaphilippe, you know, sometimes as I said, when he wasn't at his best early in the spring, still um, you know, whether it was on the Koppenberg in the Tour of Flanders, which we'll come on to, and, and you know, that, that was actually vital for his team that day. But there were times when he seemed to be attacking, attacking almost gratuitously to respond to what the others were doing. And also, you know, to give the fans, I think there was a feeling in the spring that the fans were being spoiled and were being treated and were, were absolutely just reveling in this, this festival of cycling that we were being served up. And there was... There was a sense of, of these three riders in particular wanting to respond to that. I wonder how much of that is the cyclocross element because that is a solo sport. You know, there isn't teamwork to anything like the same degree, even in an event like the World Championships where uh, there are you know national teams and notionally they are you know riding uh, on the same side. It's just a show of strength, isn't it? He who is boldest often uh, prevails and I think that that's a, there is now a kind of almost a dotted line between the monuments which are that bit longer that bit harder and as Richard you said about um, Van Aert's uh, maturity really in Gent Wevergem just knowing when to be quiet in a race is as important as as knowing when to be um, showy and when to really sort of, you know, light the rocket and try and take off. And one of the trends this year has been these incredible sort of 50, 60 kilometer solo um, attacks we've seen from Evenepoel, Van, Dylan Van Bala um, in Dwarsdor Vlaanderen, which we may mention later, um, a, a couple that stick in my mind. You know, Van der Poel has, has done it as well. Um 
you know, that that can't necessarily be the 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 only tactic that works um you know when it works it's spectacular and it, and it looks amazing but there's there's a just that bit more finesse required in the the longer races and particularly in a race like milan san remo where you know in theory 80 riders might win when they go into the bottom of the podio you know anything really could happen um but it's about just picking the moment and uh jasper Stuyven did that fantastically but i wonder what uh, in your opinion um was the outstanding ride in the monuments this year or, or actually should we ask alan piper sports director of uae team emirates um the the boss of Tade pogachar of course what was his uh, outstanding individual ride of the year well i'd have to say Asperin and run of actually he uh, had a bit of uh mechanical stuff during the race and came back into a front position and and uh and you know put it down in the final i mean yeah i think that was a pretty mean ride well alan piper there um nominating not one of his riders but casper Askreen at the tour finals we'll get on to that in a moment and we'll hear from Askreen himself but also worth mentioning Askreen's win at e3 uh an absolutely phenomenal uh performance he was away for 54 kilometers and then he was caught by a very strong group including Matthew van der Poel but crucially Florian Seneschal his teammate was there as well and he attacked again with another with five kilometers to go and held them off uh, it just it just showed his sheer physical strength and you know made him certainly one of the contenders going into the Tour of Flanders but the Tour of Flanders you know, it was only six months after the, the previous edition, of course, where we really had seen the Galacticos go head to head to head. We had that incredible break of, of Van der Poel, Van Aert and Alaphilippe until Alaphilippe hit the motorbike and crashed and, and was out of it. And then uh, this race to the line between Van Aert and Van der Poel, which Van der Poel won. And I think we, we fancied a replay of that in the Tour of Flanders this year um, for Alaphilippe it was his second go at the race um, and he was part of this de Koenig quick step team which was uh, you know their strength was the the numbers that they had and Askreen was was such a um, a strong card for them to have in their pack as well. For me the, the legs were a bit off at the end so I'm quite disappointed but um, I think I lost to a stronger guy today so that makes it easier to accept. I think I already saw and noticed that on the hills, he was one of the strongest guys. He was the, the one who, uh, when I attacked, was the, the fastest guy to, to follow. And uh, I already uh, felt that he was uh, was in a good shape today. I think I did a really good race, but yeah, at the end, uh, there was a, a guy stronger. But uh, for sure, I can be um, proud of of the races I did uh, from the beginning of the season until now. But yeah, for sure, uh, I leave uh, a bit disappointed. And that, that, was the main, that was the main difference, wasn't it? Rich mm. between Van Aert and Van der Poel and De Koenig Quickstep. We've seen it already on, on a few occasions, whether it was Ballerini at Omloop and Asgreen at E3, that you know they had various cars to play and they used them and they've done that for years. That's been the really their secret for, for two decades now. Whereas Van der Poel and Van Aert were very much reliant on their two headline acts. So those two teams were very reliant on their headline acts. And I think it's not just um, having the numbers, it's the effect that that has on the riders themselves, the the security. You know, Askreen was very active in the Tour Flanders pretty early on. You know, if you watch the race, he's at the front very early in the race. Um, and he's doing that partly because he is one of the favourites, but also because have, he's got Julian Alaphilippe there as well, and others as well. You know, it wasn't just the two of them. Um and so he can make these efforts, uh, knowing that if it, you know if 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 it's not the right time to have made that move, there's there's the security of having another strong teammate there with you, and that the effect of that must be very powerful indeed. But what's interesting, uh, well, you know, De Kooning Quickstep released a video after the race showing some of the behind the scenes stuff and the team talk from Tom Steele's the night before, and and their um, their plan to really open the race up very early on and really try and put Van der Poel, Van Aert on, on the back foot a little, which is what they did. You know, they they um, dictated the race. Alaphilippe also was on the attack pretty early too. Um, but Van der Poel afterwards said that whenever he moved, Askreen was the first to re respond to him. 
he was just on a very very good day they, they those two got away together um van art was with them initially they dropped them um they, they dropped van art on the eau de quaramont and they rode up the paterbury together and to the finish together I think most people were expecting Askreen to have a go at some point because in a sprint, you would have always fancied van der Poel. Um, and again, in that video released after the race, it was clear that De Kooning Quickstep didn't think like that at all, that they had total confidence in Askreen's sprint. Um, and, and so it proved. I mean, van der Poel um, didn't do himself many favours by leading it out and then opening up pretty early, which probably gave Askreen a better chance. Uh, and... Askreen came round him to win. Um, the biggest win of his career, but he has been knocking on that door for a few years now. Shall we hear from Caspar Askreen, winner of the Tour of Flanders? I spoke to him last week. Um, he was at home in Denmark. I started by asking him whether his team's strategy was to use their numbers and collective strength to try and beat the Galacticos, Van der Poel and Van Aert. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think... Uh... Mathieu and Wout and uh, so on is, is really uh, difficult guys to match uh, man for man. I think our uh, the depth of, uh, of strength that we have in, in our squad uh, can, can match them uh, and also uh, out, uh, outsmart them uh, sometimes. Not always, but, but sometimes we manage to. But they are really, really, really good bike riders and uh, you have to have a, a lot of uh, respect and we, we saw some of the, the team meeting um, in, in a video released by the, the team uh, the night before. Tom Steele's telling you about the importance of that, of having numbers up there, obviously, which is always a, a quick step strategy and, and keeping riding. But you went pretty early on the day, didn't you? I mean, you, you were at the front of the race quite early on. Yeah, we decided to try to, uh, to to split the race open already on the Molenberg. Uh, the first time we made our first acceleration, and, and uh, yeah, just just because we have that strength uh, across the whole squad, then we we also want uh, kilometers enough to be able to use that strength. Otherwise, if we wait until the last 40k, then uh, it's too uh, it's too easy for uh, the leaders, uh, the single leaders of a team, to to match uh, to match us. So so to to really take advantage of having that uh, strength uh, across the whole squad is we need we need to open up the race uh, early. And did you know at that point um, that you were on a really good day? Could you feel it? Yeah, I felt I felt good pretty much the whole race. Then. Uh, that was the first uh, first box uh, ticked off, uh, good legs, and then uh, from then on, you still need to focus a lot and make sure you're in the right places at the right time. So it's uh, you always have to just remain focused, and that was what I was trying to do uh, throughout the first uh, 150 kilometers or so of, of the race. And when you've got good legs like that in such a, a long race, is it also a battle to, to control yourself, to not get carried away and, and to, to, you know, conserve as well as much as possible. Yeah, for sure. You have to, uh, you have to trust that your teammates uh, will, will put you in that position uh, and uh, they're going to make sure that nothing gets uh, out of control uh, so that you have the legs to, to finish it off uh, in the end. Uh, because if we all start moving on, on, uh, on things uh, too early, then, uh, then we're all just going to burn uh, matches uh, that are unnecessary. So, yeah, it's really an exercise in, 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 in trusting your, your teammates. And then, obviously, the, the decisive moment, the race, you and Matthew van der Poel get away on the Eau de Quaremont. Did you know, as soon as that happened, that was the moment that the race was going to be between the two of you? Yeah, I, pretty quickly we could see that Bob didn't have the legs to close the gap behind us. So, uh, from then on, we... We worked together, and uh, I think we were both uh, happy to, to go to a sprint. So uh, that was uh, it was not too difficult to, to, to get into a good uh, cooperation. I mean, I guess people watching um, were waiting for, for your attack, you know, waiting for you to, to have a go. Um, but, but that was clearly never in your thoughts or in your team's thoughts. No, also, when, when you're with two people, uh, when, you, when you're only with two, then... It's, it's difficult to go anywhere because he only needs to watch one rider, you know. Uh, it's it's too easy for him to just follow if I attack and get in the slipstream. So attacking when you're only two, is, uh, it's, it's, it's usually a waste of energy if there's no uh, like challenges in the terrain, like a hill or something that where you can do it. 
obviously the Baltaberg would would have been at the, the chance to do it, but but after the Baltaberg is just completely flat. I think on the Baltaberg uh, first we needed to distance uh, distance for Houten, then we could try to play afterwards. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a bit uh, bit bit too early. And then afterwards, there was just not no no way you could try to jump. So uh, I, I I put my uh, my energy and my focus uh, on the sprint, and uh, I was uh, I was also feeling confident about that. So that was uh, that was fine by me. How did you sense Van der Poel was going? Did you did you sense any any weakness in him, or um, you know were you trying to gauge how strong he was feeling at that point, how fresh he was? Obviously, you try to feel your uh, competition uh, out and see, uh, try to look for uh, for signs uh, if he's going well or he's uh, suffering. I think at the end of uh, a Tour of Flanders, uh, 270Ks in the legs, uh, everybody is uh, suffering, uh, me me included. So I think in the end, we were pretty uh, pretty evenly uh, matched uh, on both the back and, and on the way to towards the finish line in Ugnanadi. And in the sprint itself, I mean, we, we saw again in, in the car, Tom Steeles was certainly co- really confident in your sprint. Um, did you feel that too? And then w- when the sprint opened up and Van der Poel opened it up, you know, at what point there did you did you feel like you had him? When I passed him, <laughs> not, <laughs> not until then. I, I had a plan to open, the, to open the sprint early because I know I don't have the same acceleration as him, but and it takes me a bit longer to get up to speed, but but usually I can keep accelerating for quite long. So my my, my, my plan was to just open up the sprint early and, and try to uh, to grind my way uh, past him. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our long-term sponsor, Science & Sport, for their support of the Cycling Podcast. If you'd like 25% off all your Science & Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com, enter the code SISCP25, and uh, you will get 25% off. I know Daniel was asking me recently, having heard the code for about four or five years now, he was asking me recently for a recap so that he could order some Science & Sport products for his uh, his big race that's coming up. Um, care to furnish us with any more details about that, Daniel? Or are you going to be mysterious about it? Uh, not particularly, Rich. Uh, maybe next week. We've got, we've got an episode next week. Maybe as we get closer to D-Day. Just, uh, just a, a clue then. Will, will people be able to dot watch? I think they will, actually, yeah. Yeah, they will. Oh well, there you go. there's a little a little clue. So more more details next week's episode of Daniel's uh, upcoming race. Well, sticking with uh, fueling and nutrition, I've designed a five course monuments meal. And, of course, uh, you have. Uh, well, I've stuck with the order that the races were held this year, which has caused a few issues um, <laughs> in terms of which dishes. And, 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 and maybe created opportunities as well. Possibly. Lionel. Possibly. Well, Milan Sanremo, of course, the first monument. So we'll kick off with a little appetizer. Focaccia is from Liguria. Um, so we'll just have some focaccia served very simply, I guess, with some balsamic vinegar and olive oil. Will that, will that pass muster, Daniel? Um, yeah, you wouldn't, I don't think, you, yeah, oh, okay, skull, not, not so much balsamic vinegar, that. I was horrified the other day in my local <laughs> pizzeria in Berlin, they served focaccia with guacamole. Oh, dear. oh good lord, oh, what yeah. is the world coming to? And then uh, the Tour of Flanders now, of course, you know, Flemish stew would be, would be great, but we, we need a fish course, so I'm going to go for the waterzoi, which is traditionally a cross between soup and stew, traditionally made with fish, but now more commonly made with chicken. But in the better restaurants, in the likes of Ghent or Bruges, you can find the fish a variety. And if you're over there, I recommend um, seeking that one out and not settling for the chicken because it is uh, another level above. Then we have Liège, Baston Liège, and the meat course, Boulet à la Liégeoise, which is uh, basically big meatballs, often served with chips, um, traditional Belgian frites, and a, a can, we, can we wash this down with a bit of Belgian beer as well at this point? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with l- l- sauce lapin, which is not rabbit sauce, it's named after a woman called Madame Geraldine Lapin, um, and uh, it's really very tasty. I, I do like a boulet à la Liegeoise. And then Il Lombardia, uh, the pudding, the dessert course, will have a sweetened polenta. I'm still waiting for some kind of pudding 
version of Polenta, Daniel. We were at the Giro in Bergamo a few years ago, and it was it was uh, talked up, wasn't it, by uh, Marco Pinotti that we were going to get some excellent uh, polenta, but we ended up going for a pizza instead. And this year, for one year only, Paris-Roubaix held in the autumn, of course, not in the spring. So the final of the five monuments, I suppose we could seek out some cheese um, from the Roubaix region, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Roubaix is uh, a culinary hotspot in France. I suppose if it was earlier in the meal, we, we could have had a pavé Something, de boeuf. I think it's a buffalo grill in Roubaix. Oh, the buffalo grill. But pavé de boeuf <laughs> would work for the cobblestones, wouldn't it? But I think we're more likely to, you know, uh, after a big night, we'll end up in Pyramid Kebab, which is the closest kebab shop to the uh, velodrome in Roubaix. That has some excellent Google reviews, I saw. <laughs> it's, uh, who, who, reviews, who reviews a kebab shop? Really? It's the star rating on TripAdvisor that worries me. An average of two and a half stars, which means that plenty of people have given it one. Um, but, you know, mm. a good kebab can be really excellent, but a bad one can, well, it can uh, lead to a sort of a, a real sort of hangover of sorts, can't it? But there we are. That's the five course monument meal. A prize for the first person who recreates that at home and photographs it. <laughs> what all. a prize. What kind of prize? Oh, it'll have to be a special prize, won't it? I'll a come up with something. A five course meal with Lionel Burney. <laughs> In not Watford. I think if anyone did that and went to the effort of creating those dishes, uh, I'd be happy to uh, take them for dinner. Yeah. They don't have to travel to those each of those places to do it, though, do they? Um, taking it a bit far, isn't it? No, they don't. They can can make these dishes at home. We heard before the break from the Tour of Flanders winner Casper Askreen, and that was really the last of the cobbled classics. We were into the the slightly hillier classics because Pyro Bay for the second year row was postponed. Um, until October, so we did have Pyro Bay this year, but not in the usual slot. And um, we went into those slightly hillier races, building up towards Liège, Bastogne, Liège, and uh, Wat van Aert was somebody who carried on, uh, as did Julian Alaphilippe from the cobbles into the climbs, and he uh, took the form from the cobble classics into with with, with to good effect into Brabantse Pale. He was second there uh, to Tom Pidcock, and then. The two of them uh, went toe-to-toe again at the Amstel Gold Race and uh, Van Aert got the verdict there in a very, very close finish indeed, one that was hotly contested. It was a photo finish and uh, I think Pidcock remains convinced to this day that he um, he should have been declared the winner of that race. We will hear from Tom Pidcock a bit later on, but Van Aert, the winner of the Amstel Gold Race. So in the analysis of these early classics or the, the first chunk of classics with uh, you know those those riders coming together the galacticos uh, all coming together um who who as you mentioned lionel none of them won a monument but who uh, came out of that period uh, with the best record well it's, it's difficult to make a direct comparison um chaps they did, did slightly different races didn't they but i mean overall they were very consistent particularly Van Aert was was in contention everywhere he rode. I think from his point of view, um, whether he reached par or not, I'm not sure. But I think it would have been a really important spring in terms of the lessons that he, he took and his team took from the spring classics. Um, they simply weren't strong enough, were they? I mentioned Mike Turnison there um, having missed out on the classics. I mean, it's a budget question for Jumbo Visma. Obviously, they're... Well, they're nominally, they have been a, a Grand Tour team and they've almost happened upon Van Aert um, over the last three or four years, almost by accident. And, and now they find themselves in a position where they have to invest heavily in him and in the classics as well. Um, but he he was underpowered. The team were underpowered at Flanders. Yeah, ju- just just let's not forget, Daniel, it's not just Mike Tennyson, but Tom de Moulin was supposed to be riding those races yeah. as well. That was going to be... A big part of the Jumbo Visma offensive was to have De Moulin by Van Aert's side in the Tour of Flanders and some of the other cobbled races. Indeed. And, well, I mentioned the the very probably lucrative contract extension for Van Aert at the start of the year. They've obviously got long-term commitments to Primoz Roglic and um, Jonas Vingogar and others now. So for them, it's going to be a, a question of just marshalling enough resources for the classics. Van Aert, was, he was isolated way too early in the Tour of Flanders in particular. I think he was on his own in a big group, about 70-man group with the 50 kilometres to go. The other question for him now, I think, is, is, to, is how to sort of hide his light under a bushel a little bit more and to be at times the only 
only Jumbo Visma rider in a group and and not to frighten not to scare not to intimidate and the other riders in the group in such a fashion that you you know you, you do still have a chance you have a chance of of um, well other people working contributing to the chase and it's really the dilemma that Peter Sagan faced for years when um, you know at Bora he was often their only contender um, in the finale of, of big classics and you know if you look at, at Sagan's record overall and we think now that he's sort of entering the, the twilight of his, his classics career you know five or six years ago you probably would have hoped or thought that Sagan would have won more monuments and um, you know he managed to bag a couple but he very often found himself in that in that situation where people were scared of him and they wouldn't work and he found himself marooned in the group behind and Van Aert's answer to that so far has been to, to ride very generally generously and to take things on himself but it's often been at the expense of of his own chances you know you mentioned Brabant's appeal there you know he's even been beaten in sprints at times in, in groups where you would have thought he would be the quickest guy um, because he's had to do so much work we saw it later in the year again in the Olympic road race and arguably Sagan's best ever monument win classics performance was in Pyru, the Pyru Bay that he won where a teammate Daniel Oss was very very important indeed but just before we we leave uh, the Van Art Van Der Poel rivalry behind in your conversation with Alan Piper Lionel he said a couple of interesting things about them um, so let's hear from Piper again now Oh look! I think there's every generation has their has their riders of their caliber. You know, whether it was born in the last generation or Monsieur Cancellara, the generation before, or even for the Ardennes Classics. It, 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 you know, there's there's always riders Argentine to mention one um, who are of that caliber. But uh, I think when it comes to Van Aert and uh, and Van der Poel, the the, the the thing that they bring across is their cyclocross background, which gives another twist because. No one's come from cyclocross and made such an impact on, on pro cycling before, and especially in the ways they do. You know, the way Van der Poel won Amstel last year, the way the way that Van Aert won three stages, three various stages in the Tour this year, you know, and has won, you know, so many other races. It's like this has been done before. I think that gives, I think that puts an extra twist on it, you know, and makes it seem like they're more special, but they're just, they're just great bike riders. You look, Sven, Sven Nash tried to ride the road and couldn't do it. So it's not that it's it's not uh, you know, it's not the riding cyclocross is going to make you a great bike rider, you know. And obviously you've got Tom Pidcock as well, the same thing, you know. Of course, it, it helps your bike handling skills, you know, in, in races, which which is necessary to make position and save you energy. But um, they're just great bike riders. That's it. I think you know as we, we've seen the last couple of years, uh, on the pool and Van Aert, don't worry too much about throwing their energy around during the race and that's cost them a few races I think you know whether they savvy up and, and ride in a different way um, yeah, that remains to be seen it might be just a part of their part of their persona that they, they ride that way and you know will cost them some wins because especially if there's if there's a strength in numbers you know like from the Cooney quick step in the classics you know but you know having having said that uh, I don't think other teams are out to beat Van Aert or Van der Poel. I think, uh, I think every team just goes out there with the guns they've got and uh, tries to use their ammunition the best they can, you know. And I, I think uh, when you start to focus on one or two riders, you're sort of missing the point, you know. You've either, you've either got to be in the race and, and creating the, the race environment that's suited to your team or, or, or following your own tactic with, with you know, obviously with, with different scenarios in the background, whether it's the strength of the Kuni quick step, whether it's individuals, uh, and teams like Van der Poel's of Van Aert, but focusing, not focusing on, on on an individual per se, you know? Well, I think the one thing this season's one-day races has shown us is that Van Aert and Van der Poel need to perhaps on occasion broaden their horizon a little and, and realise that uh, there's a, a lot more going on in races than just, you know, fixating on each other. Uh, I think we've perhaps uh, anticipated this showdown because they're such similar riders not just in terms of the types of races they're good at um, because the the cobbles are at the core of what they're really good at but they can branch out into the likes of Milan Sanremo Amstel Gold possibly even in the future uh, in Liège Baston Liège maybe might not be beyond them maybe we'll discuss that a bit later on um, but you know if they are equal and opposite forces on occasion that as I said before opens the door for other people 
This has been part one of our look back at the classics. Tune in next week for part two when we look back at the Ardennes races and some of the other outstanding one-day races and ask whether Peter Sagan, particularly in light of some recent news about trouble he was in in Monaco in April, can return to his previous form in his new team. We'll also hear from Tom Pigcock, from Tom Squeenge, Jonathan Vauters and again from Alan Piper. Thanks to Eurosport GCN and InCycle for some of the clips used in this week's episode. It was produced by Will Jones. <laughs>